Please rise now as we hear the call of our Heavenly Father. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Happy is he who has God, the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Okay, let us do so. Let us praise the Lord. Uh, first of all, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. If you will now take your hymnals, uh, if you need to, 570, uh, which uh, is the one we normally sing, and then turning to 8, uh, Psalm 8, we're doing the uh, C, 8C. So 570 if you need it, and then 8C. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Alleluia, alleluia. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Alleluia. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then 8C. You want to play through it once?
Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have granted unto us the glorious revelation of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray that you would enable us to not only understand and know that glorious name, but that we would get to know you better today through your word and by your spirit. We pray that you would enable us not only to hear your word, but to respond in prayer and in praise. We pray, O Lord, that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, uh, remembering again the great work of Jesus Christ accomplished for us once for all, we ask that you would enable us to partake worthily, that it would be a blessing unto us. We also commit to you this common meal afterwards and ask your blessing on it as well and on this your day. For this is the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it, and more importantly, be glad in you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a great image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, 
or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for these ten commandments given unto a redeemed people, Israel redeemed out of Egypt, as uh, an evidence of grace, where you, at the very beginning, say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And so you call us to respond to your grace your redemption by living for you. And so that's who we are. We have your name placed upon us. We are identified in Christ as your people. And so we are called to reflect that image. Father, we do acknowledge that we have not done so in the ways that would be pleasing to you throughout this day, throughout this week. We acknowledge that we have fallen short of loving you with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all our strength. And we have also fallen short from loving our neighbor as ourself. These commandments here are different aspects of that command to love you and love others. We are guilty, once again, of loving ourselves above you and above others, of having Uh, being guilty of will worship, worshiping our will. I want what I want. We pray, O Lord, that you would forgive us, grant unto us that putting off and putting on, the ability to hate our sin and to turn from it always more and more and to rejoice in you through Christ, that you would enable us to, with joy and with full purpose, determined to see the kingdom of God evident in our lives. Your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. And so we do come to you and acknowledge our guilt, our sin, and the offense that it does to you is a personal offense. But yet we thank you for the blood of Jesus shed once for all for the remission of sins. We thank you, Lord, that if uh, we confess our sins, your word says that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we receive that cleansing. We thank you that we stand or we are seated in the righteousness of Christ. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And so we pray that you would strengthen our faith to believe the certain promise that all our sins are forgiven in Christ that we would be able to then lift our voices in song, in praise for the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, let us do so. If you'll once again take your hymnal, and uh, our hymn this morning is uh, actually Psalm 32, uh, David's uh, exaltation of what it means to be forgiven. My God, let us stand and sing. 32b.
Please be seated. Are you righteous in yourself? Are you righteous in Christ? Yes. So when we say, be glad in God, ye righteous, we're talking about those that are righteous in Christ. Rejoice. Are you a saint? Are you set apart for God's use only? Are you a holy one? Rejoice, ye saints. Rejoice. So this morning, we have an opportunity to make, again, a public profession of our faith. And we're using today the Apostles' Creed. It's found on page 851 in that hymnal. It's a summary of what the Bible teaches. It's not inspired, but it is a helpful summary. It is what the church has been confessing for millennia. And so, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And again, notice the footnote. When we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're not talking about the Roman Church. We're talking about the universal body of Christ. Okay? That starts, I believe, all the way back in the garden and all the way to the second coming of Christ. So the, the entire church, Old and New Testament throughout time. Also, if you'll, you'll find in the bulletin a little half sheet... Uh, we are working our way through the Canons of Dort this year. It's one of the three forms of unity. That is the doctrinal standards of our church. Uh, this year we've chosen to cover the Canons of Dort. And we are now in the refutation or rejection of errors. Again, for those who don't know, the Canons of Dort were written by a number of ministers and theologians from throughout Europe. Uh, it was held in Dortrecht which is in the Netherlands, but also there were uh, representatives from England, Scotland. Uh, France was, the, they were forbidden by the King of France from attending. Switzerland, Germany, throughout the Europe. To address questions that were raised, uh, a number of pastors in the Reformed Church of the Netherlands said, we want to be able to teach this. What do you think? And so the synod got, uh, those men all got together and spent... Uh, year to two years um, studying these things, and this is now, we've, we've already covered the positive declaration concerning the corruption of man, his conversion to God, and the manner thereof. Now, we are dealing with particular statements by the, uh, the complaint and their answer. 
So I will read uh, the leader section, if you'll please read the people section. We're looking at paragraph 7. The true doctrine having been explained, the synod rejects the errors of those who teach that the grace whereby we are converted to God is only a gentle advising, or, as others explain it, that this is the noblest manner of working in the conversion of man, and that this manner of working, which, which consists in advising, is more in harmony with man's nature, and that there is no reason why this advising grace alone should not be sufficient to make the natural man spiritual. Indeed, that God does not produce the consent of the will except through this manner of advising, and that the power of the divine working, there, whereby it surpasses the working of Satan, consists in this that God promises eternal, while Satan promises only temporal goods. But this is altogether Pelagian and contrary to the whole scripture, which, besides this, teaches yet another and far more powerful and divine manner of the Holy Spirit's working in the conversion of man. As in Ezekiel, a new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Notice in this statement, again, if you notice, they're drawing from what was in the request, in the complaint, in the desire to teach, and they're explaining or they're calling out these things, uh, quoting, if you will, and notice there's a couple things right there in the statement. That the grace whereby we are converted to God is only a gentle advising. So grace is God coming alongside as an advisor. And he, he pleads with you. He asks of you. That's all that grace is. Grace isn't God doing anything. Grace is only, besides, will you please accept me? That's what they're asking to teach. Notice the word advising is mentioned four times in this uh, quote. Notice also it says, which consists in advising is most in harmony with man's nature. And there's really the, the crux. The argument is, is that man has a free will. Man can freely choose or not choose God. Is that what the Bible teaches, that man has a free will? Well, I'm going to mess with you in the sense of saying, yes, I agree that man has a free will. Man freely, as we said before, freely chooses to do what delights his heart at a given moment. You understand that? The problem is not the choosing. The problem is the heart. What's God's evaluation of man's heart apart from Christ? It's only evil all the time. So the unregenerate man, the man in Adam, only chooses what delights his heart at a given moment, and what is that? Sin, rebellion, evil. 
So if I only choose to do evil all the time, will I ever choose salvation on my own? Does Paul say that in Romans 3? There's none who understands. There's none who seeks God. The natural man does not seek God. There's none good, no, not one. As we looked at earlier in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is the, the elements of a good work? The right motivation, the right goal, and the right standard. Does the natural man uh, do anything for the glory of God? Is it, does the natural man have true faith, and is that the motivation for doing anything? And the answer is no. And so right there, a, a work is disqualified from being good in the, in the sight of God. And so Paul says there is none good, no, not one. So what do we need? We need grace, the grace of God. And the grace of God, as it says, it is a powerful and divine manner. Notice again that Ezekiel statement. And we could quote lots of scriptures. Notice the word, I will. A new heart will I give, or I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So whose will saves you? According to Ezekiel. It's God's will. Salvation is of the Lord, as Jonah learned in the belly of the fish, as David learned in his uh, trial being attacked by his son. Salvation is of the Lord. Does that give glory to God? Is that what we want to do? Glorify God or glorify ourselves? That's what's placed before us. I will glorify God. I hope you do as well. All right, well, let's prepare to uh, um, hear the sermon. And if you will, we have another psalm this morning. We're singing psalms this morning, and that is Psalm 100. Um, So if you'll turn with me to 100A. Please stand and let us sing. And turning your Bibles to our text this morning, and that is found in the letter of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians and to us. Ephesians chapter 1, our our text is 19 through 23, 
but we'll begin reading in verse 15. Hear now the word of God. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word abides forever. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for moving uh, Paul, yes, in the midst of his affliction, while he was in jail, while he was in prison, uh, his compassion, his love for the uh, brethren, for the saints there in Ephesus, and for us, motivated and moved him to write this letter. We read of his prayer for them, and that desire for them is also the desire that you have for us. And so we pray that you would enable us to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and width and breadth of your love and your presence and your power and your purposes that we may fulfill those purposes on earth. We ask, O Lord, for the work of your Spirit, who guided Paul to write these things, that he would also be our teacher, and he would be the one who applies and plants this word deep in our hearts. We pray, O Lord, for the fruit thereof, a hundredfold fruit in our lives, for your glory and for the good of your church. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved in the Lord... Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt really alone? Ever been in a situation where you, you felt totally lost? Ever, have you ever been in that state? You, you just, or you've come to the, to the end, I don't, I, I just, I'm, I'm alone. Uh, I know that for me, when I first moved from Michigan to California back when I was 20, I ran into that experience. Have you ever felt alone in a crowd where you're, there's a thousand people around you and yet you still felt 
separated, alone. I, I experienced that in Africa. I experienced that in the Philippines. I experienced that in Micronesia. I experienced that in many places. Uh, Indonesia. Uh, have you ever had that experience where you're in a crowd and you're the only one that understands the language that you're speaking? Or at least where you're coming from? Does David experience that? Does a lot of the Psalms written with that kind of cry of being alone, being chased? How do you overcome that? Well, the scriptures say one of the ways is that, as it says in the main point, you are never alone. Although this is true of everyone because God is everywhere present, it is especially true for those who believe. Not only did Jesus promise never to leave us or forsake us, and do you ever remind yourself of that? Do you ever remember, oh, Jesus said that he will never leave me or forsake me. Do you ever remind yourself of that? I hope you do. Furthermore, but also, he further promised to send the, us the abiding Holy Spirit. And I have scripture verses there in the outline. But also, those in him are also part of the great cloud of witnesses, a multitude that cannot be numbered from every kindred, tr- tongue, tribe, and nation. In other words, the church. How should we say thank you for this wonderful, comforting truth by walking worthy of this calling, which Paul will bring in in chapter 4? Do you understand that you're never alone? Not only is God with you, but we're part of a great crowd, a multitude that can't be numbered. Paul is concerned for that crowd in this letter. As he prays for, if you notice, he says, I continually give thanks and I pray. And then he fills us in with what he is praying for. What does he want God to show us? And if you have been with us, We've been looking at this letter. So far, what we said was this letter is a letter of grace, if you wanted to summarize uh, the book of Ephesians. And so from verses 1 through verses 14, we have been looking at the grace of the triune God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are, he is God and he has blessed us. He starts off by talking about blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that's a key that we haven't really talked much about. In the heavenly places, our blessing is in heaven. Can anyone steal your blessing if it's in heaven? No. In the heavenly places, in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God loved you before he created you, before he created anything. He chose from eternity. He predestined in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself. From eternity into time to eternity, God is love. The grace of God is revealed in the Father, And then a large portion of this uh, section uh, from verses 3 through 14 focuses on the love of Christ and the grace of Christ. And then the last two or three verses focus on the Holy Spirit. So that's what we looked at earlier, the blessings of the triune God. 
And then last week, we began to look at this prayer of strengthening of our faith. And what does he pray? He prays, number one, that you may know the hope of your calling. Secondly, to appreciate the inheritance that we receive, that we have in heaven through Christ. And then also, and this is where we're at now, is that we understand his power. That's the focus this morning. So I'm going to give you a way to remember this sermon. And the letter of today is the letter P. Okay, kids, listen at least to this part, okay? We're looking at today the presence, the power, and the purpose of God. God's personal presence, God's personal power, and God's personal purpose. Okay, you got that? What are those three Ps? Presence. Power and purpose. I'll be asking you later, or maybe some of you adults. Okay. What are the three Ps? Presence, power, and purpose. You got it. Okay. Hold on to that. We'll, we'll just be spending time expanding on that. So let's look at, in the first point there in the bulletin, the power of God gives and sustains your life. You understand that? In him, we live and move and have our being. And Paul said that to pagans in Athens as he's preaching the gospel, as he's preparing, as he's evangelizing among these philosophers, these non-believers in Athens. He says, in him, we all have our existence. God's power is involved in maintaining your very existence. Paul will write in Colossians that in Christ, he holds everything in the universe together. Every atom of the universe is held together by the power of God. What if God were to let go of every atom in the universe? What would happen? <laughs> Be over. He sustains and holds everything together. Your existence you owe to the power of God. Paul will say in Colossians, which we read in chapter 3, we read chapter 1, but in chapter 3, he says this amazing statement. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Your life is held by Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ is your life. That's an amazing statement. What does that mean? That your life is Christ. For the non-Christian, he does hold the non-Christian together. He does, in grace, common grace, maintain his life. But for the believer, the power of God is greatly expanded and revealed. How so? 
Notice in verse, we're getting to our, back to our text. Notice in verse 19, what does Paul write? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So what's the point there? Paul is stealing or grabbing the different words that are in the Greek language, and he uses them all to try to describe the power of God. He ransacks, that's a good word, he ransacks the lexicon, the dictionary. The word power, and then the word working is actually operation. The word mighty is strength. The word power, again, is exercised might. So what is Paul trying to say here? Well, one commentator says it this way. The writer also desires believers to know the greatness of God's power and attempts to exhaust the resources of the, Eng- of the Greek language by piling up four synonyms for power in order to convey an impression of something of the divine might. Deutimus uh, uh, denotes ability to accomplish something. I'll, I won't read the Greek words. The second one, inheritance strength, power to overcome what stands in the way, the exercise of power. So what is Paul doing? He, Paul is trying to communicate to us how great God's ability to do his will. Can anything stand in his way? Nothing. He is all powerful. And what's amazing is he exercises that power toward us. He focuses his energy on those in Christ. And notice, here is the example in verse 20 of that power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the, at the right hand in the heavenly places. The resurrection of Jesus Christ declares the power of God. God's victory over death. God has power over death. How do we know? Because Christ rose from the dead. Does that give hope to us that one day we rise again? As well, he has that same power toward us. Paul will say in the letter to Romans, right at the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 4, and declare to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Christ has power. Who raised Christ? The Father raised Christ. He raised himself. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Holy Spirit raised Christ. The triune God raised Christ from the dead. Again, in 1 Corinthians 6.14, if you want to look that up, Philippians 3.10, all of these describe the resurrection of Christ as the premier 
evidence of God's power. But notice also that Paul doesn't just stop there. He also describes the ascension and seating of Christ at the right hand of God. What does that mean? So Jesus isn't here with us now. He's in heaven. Is that all that it means? The context is power. Ability to get things done. Is Jesus doing anything now besides waiting for the Father to say, go get him, as some people in the church says? Is he just waiting up there? Oh, no, no, no. He's praying for us. Well, he is. That is true. He enters interceding. Is that all he's doing? Is just praying for us. All authority, all power has give, been given to me already in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. What is Jesus saying there? Before he ascended into heaven, it's that Jesus says, I already have all authority and power. So what happened when he ascended into heaven? He's exercising that power. The idea of being seated is the one who has power, doesn't need to stand. He speaks and it happens. So in other words, is Jesus ruling now? Is Jesus Lord now? Is he Lord just over the hearts of believers or is he a Lord of all? He's the Lord of all. In other words, heaven rules earth now. Anybody ever hear me say that before? You have? Have I repeated it over and over again? Heaven rules earth now. What's the message of the book of Revelation? Heaven rules earth now. Want to read the book of Revelation? Something happens in heaven, then something happens on earth. Something happens in heaven, something happens on earth. Heaven rules earth now. Jesus rules earth now. What is the book of Acts about? Jesus rules earth now. And I could go on. Jesus is Lord. Psalm 110 is an example of Old Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. That was fulfilled. That's the most popular Old Testament passage in the New Testament applied to Christ. Psalm 8, which we sang today, ultimately is about Jesus as the ultimate ruler of the earth. Psalm 2 Again, what's the summary of Psalm 2? The Lord reigns, or Jesus is Lord. He's at the right hand of the Lord, seated in a position of favor, victory, and power. Does that bring comfort to us? Your life is hid with Christ in God. That's what Paul said to the Colossians. And like I said, the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians are parallel. He goes on to say, if this is true, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died. When did you die? Did you know that you died? When did you die? Before I was born, right? In Adam we died. We were born dead. And unless the work of the Spirit of God, 
raises us to newness of life. We call it being born again or being regenerated or made alive. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You died in Adam. You died in Christ and made alive in him. So when did you die? He says, Paul says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death your members then that are on the earth. So as you say, well, if you died to sin, died to the devil, died to the world, what are you to do? Put to death your flesh. Put to death those members that are warring against who you are in Christ. And so he'll go through and put off the old man, put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communications out of your mouth, and so on. And then he says, well, put on the new man, which is a renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So putting off and putting on is not only in Ephesians, but even more well expounded on in Colossians. So how do I do that? Well, with the power of God. Is God able to put off? Is God able to put on? Is God enable you? Does he want you to? Is that a purpose for the work of the Spirit in your life is that the old man would be put off and the new man would be put on? And the answer is yes. Does he have the ability to do it? Yes. So what's the problem? Me. I'm not trusting. I'm not looking to him and his power. Or I'm relying on myself to do it. And boy, do I fail miserably. Just ask my wife. Second point. The purpose of God gives you meaning and hope. Most of you know this question and answer. What is man's primary purpose? Any of the kids? Do you, remember, do you know that answer? What is, what is our purpose? What's the primary reason for us being here on earth? Anybody? Okay, anybody? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not nice, that second part is cool. But the first part is, is really, I can show you from Scripture very clearly, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, the revelation of God. Why do you exist that God would be revealed one way or other? Okay. For your good, we hope, or otherwise. So for the glory of God, and that's why I like that second part, and to enjoy him forever. Let me ask you this. What is the universe's primary purpose? Why does everything exist? For the glory of God would be a, a good, solid answer. That's why. But look what Paul says in Ephesians in our, book, in our text, verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. What is the purpose of the chair that you're sitting on? What is the purpose of the lights that are here? What is the purpose of the sun, the moon, and the stars? According to Paul, it's for Christ. Everything exists 
for Jesus Christ. Everything, the purpose of creation is for the glory of God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. At least that's what Paul is saying. Again, I'll read that. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, in him. In him, he says it twice there. Everything exists for Christ. Do you exist for Christ? Well, in one sense you do, whether you like it or not, whether you want to or not. What is God calling you? To want that. To be. He's to gather all things together in Christ. But notice he goes on to say, in our text, he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be a head over all things to the church. So the purpose of Christ includes you and I in Christ, the church. So you could say from another perspective, everything exists for the church, the body of Christ, the believers who are part of Christ. He's the head, we are the body. And so the chairs exist for you in one sense. The light exists for you in Christ. Does that, make, does that blow your mind? It blows my mind. I'm in Christ. Everything belongs to Christ. I belong to Christ. That's the logic that Paul is saying there. Paul goes on to say, not only on the earth, but notice he says, just before that, far above, or, or, I'm sorry, verse 20, far, um, at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above principalities, powers, might, dominion, every name that is named, not only in the age which, uh, age, uh, in this age, but in the age that is to come, and has put all things under his feet. So he's talking about this rule of Christ from heaven, and that is far above all powers. Uh, again, one author, uh, Lincoln, writing in his commentary, says it this way. Yet for the early Christians, Christ had not simply disappeared, nor had he evaporated into the universal spirit, but he had departed to a new sphere, that of heaven, which would be appropriate to his transformed body's mode of existence. In view of the history of salvation as a cosmic dra drama, catch that, salvation, the history of salvation is a cosmic drama. Christ's exaltation to heaven means that a shift in the center of gravity from the realm of earth to that of heaven has taken place. Isn't that an interesting thought. Focus is not no longer on the earth, but heaven. He goes on to write, Or the central figure in the drama of salvation has been moved from the setting of earth to the heaven where he now is. This is crucial for understanding the writer's perspective in this letter. It is not that Christology has been swallowed up in, in ecclesiology or church, but rather that what has happened to Christ 
becomes determinative for the church in its relationship to the heavenly realm. Did you catch that? In other words, we've been taught, we've talked about this. Where are you right now? Well, I'm in Dickinson, North Dakota. Well, that's true. But where are you right now, according to the scriptures? You're in heaven. You're in the holy presence of the triune God. Where two or more gathered in my name, I am there in the midst, Christ says. Is Christ come down from heaven? No, we're not Lutheran. We go up in the Spirit. Right now you're seated in heavenly places in Christ. Is that a scripture? Does it say that somewhere in the Bible? Yeah, chapter 2 of Ephesians. Right now, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are in heavenly places. We are getting, again, a reminder of the, of the true perspective on reality. We're busy during the week doing what we do, what we called to do. And many times we get so caught up in the affairs of life, raising children, teaching, working, whatever it is, that we lose sight of the reality that earth is not the final. Earth is temporary. The things that happen here impact eternity, impact heaven. That's why we come to church, isn't it? At least it should be. One of the reasons is to get our heads out of the earth and get them into heaven so that we can be heavenly minded, so that we can be of any earthly good because we have the right perspective. That's what Paul is talking about here. The power of God and, like we said, we are now focusing on the purpose of God that he might gather together in one all things. When Christ returns, he will gather everything together. He will judge, and he will separate. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the source of its life. He is the supreme ruler. He is ever-present with it. He sympathizes with it. He loves the church as a loving husband, greater than any husband. Greater love is no man than this, that he laid down his life for his bride, for his church, which is his body. Isn't that an amazing thought? Does Christ have a body here on earth? Yes. Yeah, I'm looking at it. You and I. We are his body. Again, Lincoln, in a commentary, I don't normally quote much from commentaries, but I really liked what he had to say. Here's the summary of this point. All the supremacy and power of God has given to Christ, he has given to be used on behalf of the church. In this way, the church is seen to have a special role in God's purposes for the cosmos. What we do What you and I do impacts the rest of the world. When we pray, God answers our prayer. Does he affect earth? Yes. It's an amazing privilege that we have. The power of God being exercised through the church, through the prayers of his saints. As instruments of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. One uh, one musician writes it this way, 
Christ has no hands on earth but yours. Christ has no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the hands that minister to the needs of those around. Okay, so what is that, my third point, what does that do for me? What, what am I being called to do? Uh, pastors usually want to apply text, right? They should if they're a good pre- preacher. I don't know how good I am, but here we go. So how do I de- demonstrate? How do I demonstrate? Okay, what were those three Ps? Guys? Presence. Presence. Power. Power. Purpose. Purpose. Very good. Yes. You didn't fall asleep on me. Thank you. So how do, you understand, how do I demonstrate the presence of God, the power of God, the purpose of God? Well, that's what this letter is about. He spends half the letter, chapters 1 through 3, enabling us to know him. And then starting in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, now, now walk worthy of it, of what you've been called to do. And throughout chapters 4, 5, and into 6, walk, 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 walk. And then stand, 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 stand. So here he's giving commands. Here's how to apply it. So number one, walk worthy of the calling. How do we do that? Well, in verse 3 of chapter 4, switching to chapter 4 where he does that, he says by keeping the unity of the Spirit in the ground, in the, uh, I'm going to read it. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is the primary tool of the devil to overcome you and me? What's his number one tool? It's the wedge. Divide and conquer. I don't know how many times my wife and I have gotten into a conflict and we stop and we say, wait a second, this is really going south and we're really not... Somebody else is involved here. Somebody's trying to put a wedge between us. You've ever experienced that? In a conversation, you say something and the other person doesn't understand what you said and the next thing you know, it starts going crazy. Me? Am I, am I, am I the only one here? You? No? You ever seen that, that wedge show up in marriage? Brothers and sisters, so on. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Secondly, verse 13 of chapter 4. Grow up. Grow up in Christ, speaking the truth in love. Again, further on, put off. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put on the new man. In chapter 5, walk in love of Christ for Christ. Walk as children of light, 5.8. Walk carefully under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the rest of the letter, he's going to say, here's how to take what God has given you, the power of God, through the Spirit, and fulfill God's purpose, which is that all things will be brought together as one. Working and walking together. Remember how I started the sermon? Have you ever felt alone? My answer was, you're never alone. Is that true? Yes. In Christ, by the Spirit, and with one another. 
with his church. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for these wonderful truths that are found in your word. We are not worthy of the least of your, of your grace and blessings, but yet you have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Help us to be able to be of that heavenly mind, to be able to see and declare that Jesus is Lord of my life and of everything. Help us to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Enable us, O Lord, to understand your power and your purpose, and help us, Lord, to fulfill your purpose for our lives. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by giving of his tithes and our offering. Father in heaven, we do come before you, and we thank you for the ability to work, the ability, the power that you've given to us, and the opportunities to exercise that power, and the fruit thereof, and we give to you this portion of what you have enabled us to do, and give it back to you, acknowledging that everything belongs to you, and that all things exist for you. You own everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So we give back to you this portion acknowledging that. And we pray, O Lord, for your blessing and wisdom in the dispersing and the use of these resources. And we also ask, O Lord, that you would grant unto us as stewards, as managers of the rest, that you would enable us to be found faithful. We desire to hear you say one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enable us, O Lord, to be found faithful with the gifts that you've given us, the gifts of breath, the gifts of ability to live and move and have our being, of our, the use of our minds, uh, the many, many, many blessings that you've given to us. Enable us to be good stewards of those things. We also ask that you would provide for our needs um, as you commanded us, um, things like our daily bread, our daily breath, uh, the need for a restoration and uh, unity in our relationship with others, the war against the world, the flesh, the devil. We pray, O Lord, that you grant us victory. And we pray these things for your glory's sake, praying the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So we are preparing to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Um, in the bulletin, you'll notice that it says, for those of you that are visitors, that the, uh, uh, we do extend visiting privileges to visitors. Uh, the, the questions we would like for you have, to have talked to an elder or to me beforehand, but if you didn't, um, notice the three questions. Uh, 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 Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are called to examine ourselves before we take the Lord's Supper. And so what are the things? Number one, let us consider our sin and cursed state before God apart from Jesus Christ so that we may humble ourselves in the presence of God. In other words, the Heidelberg Catechism says it's three things you need to know in your comfort. The first is how great is our sin and misery. Have you sinned against God? Are you facing death apart from Christ? The wages of sin is death, separation, eternal separation. Have you sinned against God? Number two, let us examine our hearts, whether we truly believe the sure promise of God that all our sins are forgiven only for the sake of Jesus Christ. In other words, how we are redeemed from all our sins and misery. Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Not just simply, I believe in him, but I'm resting in him. It's like that chair that you're sitting in. You looked at the chair before you sat down. You said to yourself, I believe that's a chair and I believe it'll hold me up. But you didn't really trust the chair till you sat down. Are you resting in Jesus Christ alone as the only means of salvation? Not in yourself, not in your faith, but in Christ alone. Is he your savior? Let us search, the third part, let us search our conscience, whether we are determined to show our thankfulness to God for such redemption by living a life of trust in and obedience to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord of all things, but is he your Lord? Have you bowed the knee? You will one day bow the knee, willingly or unwillingly, according to Philippians. Have you bowed the knee willingly? Is Jesus the boss? Is Jesus your Lord? Is he your everything? What's not stated there is, uh, for those that are visitors, is, is that one of the evidences of that commitment to Jesus as Lord is to obey what he says. And one of the things he, he desires of us is to be part of the body of Christ, both in one sense, the universal body of Christ, but also a local member of a church. Now, there are some of you that, by providence, are not members of, an, of a church. The question that we raise is, are you desirous? Is that a desire, but you've been providentially hindered to be a member of a Trinitarian church? If you can, if you can say yes to that, or if you're a member of good standing in a local Trinitarian church, and desire to take the Lord's Supper, then we encourage you to do so. You're invited to do so. If not, if you're not desirous to be part of a body, a church, then we would discourage you from partaking. If you have any questions about that, please come and see me. So let us prepare. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to the words of the institution of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
The Lord, the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament, the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Until his coming again, it is to be observed as a continuing remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death. But I would also add, and his victory in his resurrection, and the celebration of his ascension into heaven, and our patiently waiting for his return from heaven. He says it right there in those words. You proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, till he returns. The physical elements of bread and wine, representing the broken body and shed blood of our Savior, are received by true believers as signs and seals of all the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. They signify and seal the remission of sins and nourishment and growth in Christ. So what does a sign do? A sign points to something else. The bread and the wine point to something else. It's not, the focus is not on the bread or the wine, but on Christ, which is what it's pointing to. His body and blood, his death. But they're also bread and wine. Back in the day, bread was another word for food. If you were at a meal in the Middle East, then they didn't serve bread, they didn't serve food. Bread was connected with food. Wine was what you drank. You didn't drink the water, it could kill you. So you drank, so it's food and drink. Nourishment. Our bodies need nourishment. Do we need to be nourished by Christ every day? And the answer is yes. So they point to Christ. Furthermore, they are a bond and pledge of the communion of believers with him and with each other as members of his spiritual body, the church. As signs and seals of the covenant of grace, they not only declare that God is faithful and true to fulfill the promise of the covenant, but they are also summons us to all the duties of the children of God. They call us to renewed consecration in our thankfulness for his salvation. So in one sense, they are speaking. They are a visible, as uh, Calvin would say, they're a visible sermon. They're preaching Christ. They're focusing our attention on Christ and what Christ has called us to do, to thank him by living for him. In order that we may celebrate the Lord's Supper to our comfort, it is first necessary that we properly examine ourselves. And I just covered that earlier. How great my sin and misery, how I'm redeemed from all my sin and misery, and how I'm to express thankful to God for such redemption. It is my solemn duty to warn the uninstructed, the profane, the scandalous, and those who secretly and unrepentantly live in any sin, not to approach the holy table where they would partake unworthily, not discerning the Lord's body, and so in eat and drink judgment to themselves. So there is a warning. The Lord's Supper is designed to be a blessing. But if it's taken unworthily, it's 
also a curse. Where's that in the Bible? Well, Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Nevertheless, this warning is not designed to keep the humble and contrite from the table of the Lord as if the supper were for those who might be free from sin. In other words, is there anybody here that is not still battling with sin? Warring against the flesh? Is anybody here uh, arrived, has not sinned for 25 years? I heard a man once say that, he's, that he hasn't sinned in 25 years. Or at least I heard a story about it. And my friend who told me the story said, he just said to the guy, you just did. Okay. We who are in Christ, we still are at war. We are invited to the supper, come as guilty and polluted sinners who are without hope of eternal life apart from the grace of God in Christ. We confess our dependence for pardon and cleansing upon the perfect sacrifice of Christ. We base our hope of eternal life upon his perfect obedience and righteousness, and we humbly resolve to deny ourselves, crucify our old nature, and follow Christ as those who bear his name. What is your righteousness before God? Is it your own or is it Christ? Is Christ's righteousness perfect, acceptable to God? If you're in Christ, your righteousness is Christ's righteousness. That white robe is yours. Otherwise, they're filthy rags. Right? My righteousness is a filthy rag. He's taken that away and he's clothed me with Christ in his righteousness. Is that your testimony? Is Jesus your righteousness? Let us pray. Father, we beseech you that in this supper in which we cherish the blessed memory of the bitter death of your dear son, Jesus Christ, you will so work in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that with true faith we may give ourselves up more and more to your Son in order that our burdened and contrite hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit may be nourished and refreshed with his true body and blood, yes, with Christ himself, who is true God and true man, the only heavenly bread. We pray that we may no longer live in our sins, but that Christ may live in us and we in him, so that we may truly be partakers of the new and everlasting testament, the covenant of grace. We do not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, never again imputing our sins to us, but providing for us all things necessary for body and soul as your dear children and heirs of your promises. Grant us your grace, we pray, so that we may take up our cross cheerfully, deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all our tribulation with an uplifted head expect our Lord Jesus Christ to come from heaven where he will recreate our mortal bodies into the likeness of his glorified body and take us to himself in eternity. Be pleased also, O Lord, to bless these elements of bread and wine, so that receiving them in remembrance of the passion and death of your dear Son, we may by faith be made partakers of his crucified body and shed blood with all his benefits to our spiritual nourishment and to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Not yet, not yet. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And after he gave thanks, and again, that so, so much strikes me. He knew what this represented, what he was about to go through on the cross and before. And yet he said to the Father, Thank you for what's about to happen to me.
and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Shall we wait and partake together? The bread that we break is not communion with the body of Christ. Shall I partake the other? In the same manner, after the supper was ended, he took the cup. And again, having given thanks, he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Shall we wait again and partake? And the center is grape juice for those who so desire.
Sometimes the Lord's Supper is also referred to as the Eucharist. What does that word mean? It means to give thanks. So this is not just the memorial of a dead friend. Some people treat the Lord's Supper that way. It's not. It's a celebration, isn't it? Jesus rose from the dead. He has conquered death. This is a celebration. Yes, it's serious, but it is a time of rejoicing too. Because if he is alive in Christ, we are too. The cup of blessing which we bless is in a communion with the blood of Christ. Shall we partake together? Let us pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Therefore our hearts and lives shall show forth your praises, O Lord, from now on and forevermore. Amen. And let us do so. Let us uh, once again stand and sing and rejoice in the almighty power of God who made the mountains rise. That's hymn number 250. Let us, let us stand.
Does that tie in with the question about you're never alone? Are you ever alone? God is always there. Amen. Do you notice also the statement about while all that borrows life from you is ever in your care? Do you know that your life is borrowed, is owned by God, and is a gift of grace? Every breath you breathe, you're inhaling the mercy of God. Do you ever say thank you? This is a time we can do so. Receive now God's blessing and benediction using the words, again, of the Apostle. Now the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever.